0: Hello, this is John Hendren and you're listening to Bachcast. This is episode number 12, focused on BWV 806, Bach's first English suite for keyboard. Listen to this podcast before we looked at Partita number one, and I mentioned in that episode that that was Bach's first keyboard suite that had been published, his Opus One. And yet, when we get to the English suites, where do they follow in that chronology? Actually, we believe that this was Bach's first set of suites, not necessarily a published set, not necessarily his Opus One for the public but the first one that he said about writing. Some research suggests that this was uh, before he actually got to Leipzig, right? Um, and what were his models? Well, despite the name English, um, which is somewhat of an anomaly why they're called English sweets, they really have nothing to do with English taste or English models. Uh, they're quite at their conception uh, said in a French, French way. And of course, if we were to look at the names of the movements, they speak to the idea of a French keyboard suite. We get a prelude, and each of the English suites have a prelude, which is a um, was kind of an anomaly i guess for for German uh keyboard suites and so we definitely think Bach was looking at France because those were a tradition, especially the unmeasured uh preludes that are so famous with um uh, Louis Couperon. Um, we get an allemande, a courant, and a double in this first English suite, a sarabande, a slow movement, and then we get two Borets, and then it concludes with what you just heard, which is a jig. Uh, if we were looking at some of his other uh, English suites, you know, uh, allemands and courants were kind of common, but then he would do some interesting things. For instance, in number three and number number six, he explores the gavotte, and he's doing so with with doubles. Um, and of course, a double is sort of a um, the opportunity for Bach to show off a little bit. He's basically taking the same tempo the same flavor of a dance and is giving us an alternate um, version of that. And um, some performances, uh, for instance, will play the first of those, play the second one and come back to the first again. Some performances won't do that at all. They'll just play them straight uh, depending if, if there are indications in the score of going back, and we would call that, in, in music speak, a de capo, uh, going back to um, revisit material. Um, and so it's, it gives the composer, too, the opportunity to change the uh, tonality. So, for instance, if we're playing, in, as in this example, in A major, we have the opportunity to to dabble in minor. So let's see what Bach does here. Uh, Bach writes this, again, with doubles. And we see that in some other Bach works. But, again, this is one of his early, as we believe, his early forays into writing keyboard suites. And if we believe that this may have been the first one, because it's the first in the collection of six, um, what ideas did Bach have for a prelude? Well, number one, he writes them them all out. There's none of this... um, Kind of free improvisatory stuff. Uh, And that's not to say that Bach couldn't write that type of stuff. There are some toccatas, for instance. Um, There are fantasias that Bach wrote that are that can kind of be interpreted in that free style. But in this case, uh, he's writing all the notes out. So let's give this a listen. And this version that we're going to listen to uh, comes from uh, a harpsichord performance I really like, Blandine Rano. the sense here that Bach is meandering a bit um, I have to say there's nothing truly profound in this movement it, It's he starts up with a theme and we keep, keep getting that theme and he's playing with uh, kind of transposing it and following it with the left hand and, uh, just giving us a flavor of the tonality of the key and if we think that's kind of cheating or was kind of light, think of why a composer would write a prelude. The prelude is sort of the, the the taste test, if you will. It's kind of swirling the wine in the glass and giving it a sniff, or it's um, it's kind of the preview of the meal by, hearing, by smelling the flavors that are coming out of the kitchen before you get your um, appetizer. Um, there is some belief that that preludes were actually a time to test the tuning of an instrument, and so that composers would purposefully um, write it out so that it was sort of a, uh, a very pragmatic thing. I can't say for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert at this, at this point to be able to tell you exactly what Bach may have been doing here, but he's definitely setting us up for this key of A major, and beyond maybe testing the instrument and making sure that all the notes are in tune, he's also giving us the flavor of the tonality of the instrument, which we know in Baroque time was kind of important. That in of course modern time we have something we called equal temperament on a keyboard instrument, meaning that that basically all the notes are equidistant apart on the scale, and we do that so that we can basically play in any key. And it's going to basically sound the same. We'll just be transposing where we start and end, of course. And if you don't have perfect pitch, uh, that is kind of a neat thing to be able to do. Uh, to change keys, you might be able to detect that it's higher or lower, but basically it's going to sound the same to you, or at least it should theory, If, it, if the if the instrument's been tuned just so. In box time, of course, they hadn't come up with this. They wanted perfect thirds. They wanted perfect fifths and so they came up with with tuning systems that would make, for instance, this key in A major sound great, but if you went too far out, let's say, to a uh, very close-by key, a flat major, it would sound totally out of tune because of the way the tuning system worked. Um, They were basically stealing those perfect uh, intervals uh, for... Uh, having very imperfect intervals uh, when you got away from the tonal center, which I know is hard to understand if you are not a musician, but um, if you listen to any harpsichord music, especially by historically informed performers, and I would say you really need to listen to the Italian or early to mid Baroque Italian and French uh French works such as Frescobaldi, let's say, on the Italian side, or uh, François Couperin on the French side, uh, you're going to hear performers who are who are tuning their instrument each time they go go to a change in key. And if you've gone to a live performance, uh, for instance, uh, one of the last French harpsichordists that I heard live was um, uh, Christophe Rousset. You know, he would stop after a piece, new key have to retune the instrument. And it wasn't just necessarily a note here, a note there. When you're changing to a very distant key, you have to retune the whole thing. And so that is the function of of a prelude. So if we don't get some deeply profound music right off the start here, um, especially if we also consider the context. This is Bach's first foray into writing sweet music. We shouldn't be too surprised. So let's see what he's got in store for us next. I'm going to continue this performance before we move to another one. So this, again, is Blandine Renault. And this, um, she's done a number of recordings on the uh, Naive label. And this is from a compilation that I purchased in 2011, although I know her version of the English Suites came out earlier than that. But this compilation was uh, put together with the French Suites, the English Suites, and the... Uh, seven toccatas. Uh, it was a nice, uh, nice collection at a, a good price. <music> you know what I hear. Uh, it's still, I get this kind of meandering, trying to find my place uh, idea uh, through this performance. And this is where I would start to pull away and say, is that really what's there? The tempo is uh, maybe a little bit on the slow side. It is allemande. An allemande is not typically seen as a fast movement. It's a moderate movement and so maybe the tempo is 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 apt here but i'd like you to hear what happens if we speed it up a little bit um the next version you're going to hear is by glenn gould uh on the piano and his recording was made in 1976 and uh we've visited or talked at least a bit a little bit about gould before and he was not uh historically informed per se but he did uh, he did know some of the history of Bach's music, and uh, one of the things that he adopted when playing Bach was a very um, sharp, detached touch on the piano, and uh, he supposedly adopted that style because he thought it mimicked the sound of the harpsichord, having a short... Uh, uh, you know, doesn't linger a long time on the harpsichord the note, and so that uh, that easy fast decay was what he was trying to achieve in that touch on the piano. But that aside, and that that kind of style, uh, which you're obviously going to hear here, listen to how the harmonic rhythm changes when he ups the tempo a little bit. Uh, we talked a little bit about harmonic rhythm in the context of Bach's Sixth Brandenburg Concerto in the earlier episode. And here I think it's apt to think about that again. And for me, it's a much more successful rendering of the allemande because we get a little better definition of the shape. And in this movement, what's important to notice is that Bach keeps most the interest in the right hand. And that's not to say the left hand never takes a role in playing the melody or supporting the melody, but it's it's really the right hand's show in this dance. So I went ahead and gave you a taste of the next uh, movement, the Courant from Glenn Gould. And what's kind of interesting, I think, is that he takes that one actually a little slower than the Alamand, which uh, wouldn't necessarily be in uh, historical rightness. But as if you know how Gould chooses his tempos, he does so on a, a big scale. He he literally uh, is trying to analyze the whole piece and is trying to set the tempo of the next movement based on the previous one, which uh, I'm not sure I fully understand, but it's it's kind of the way he feels it. And so he's not so tuned to uh, looking up what uh, you know mid 18th century uh, dancers. Uh, at what tempo would they uh, do an alamand or a courant? He's choosing it more on an artistic level, what he thinks it sounds best, which is, which is fine, and it, and it works for, I think, his thing. What I wanted you to notice was how the right hand, again, in this one, t- seems to be of importance. When we look at the second courant, what we're going to find is that the left hand plays a much more equal role uh, in the second dance. That Bach gives us in the same style so if nothing else, you're getting a sense of what uh, what Gould sounds like, what a uh, sort of a forward-thinking harpsichordist sounds like, at least from the 21st century. And now you're going to hear a very pianistic version. We're going to continue uh, the first English suite, and you're going to now hear the Sarabande. And what to me is is very interesting is is this performer, Murray Paria, uh, who recorded this in 1998, basically has the same tempo as Gould does for the Sarabande, Recording it about the same four minutes. But he is a much more um, pianistic uh, performer. Um, really uh, maybe more mainstream as a, as a classical pianist, you might say. Maybe more of a slight romantic style. Um, but not overdoing it to the point where it sounds like we're trying to interpret Beethoven. And so, I, I really appreciated hearing these. Uh, I don't own a lot by uh, Mr. Paria. He is uh, perhaps best well known for, for for Mozart over Bach, but starting in the '90s, he start putting out some new releases of Bach, which got some critical acclaim. And I appreciate them because they're uh, he probably is using the pedal and he's using some. Um, mainstream 20th century pianistic technique, uh, but he's doing so in such a sensitive way. And so when he gets to things like trills and whatnot, it, it doesn't really sound out of place. It actually sounds kind of well-crafted. And if you've listened to a lot of Gould, it is definitely a wake-up call because it's a very different style. And I hope you can appreciate it uh, because after we listen to the Saraband I want to share with you... Um, the two, I think, gems of this first English suite, which are the the two Borets. And uh, so therefore, I'm choosing uh, Mr. Perea as my favorite of what I own in terms of Bach's English suites. A version on piano, uh, which if you know me and my preferences might be kind of a surprise, but I think he does so well at it. And I think that Bach's writing at this point... Um, Really deserves for us as listeners to pull out some of the things that make it great and you can do that obviously on any instrument but the piano obviously gives us uh, some reach and some capabilities that simply weren't available to Bach on the harpsichord and I think that Murray Paria does a really good job with it so going to play a little bit of the Cerebon to give you an idea of his pianism, what I mean by that. And then we're going to listen to the borés, and then I'll tell you what's kind of interesting about those. And um, for the the length of this podcast, I'm not going to play the jig, but I would certainly invite you to check that out. And here we go. Murray Paria on piano. almost like one of Bach's inventions if you're familiar with those pieces he wrote 15 pieces as inventions or uh, in the Italian in the score Inventio and the idea was he would take a little theme and and give write out counterpoint exercises for his son uh, William Friedemann and that's how we know them as a collection and then he later wrote what we sometimes call three part inventions or symphonias you can likely find them back-to-back back on a recording, 15 of each. And it was kind of a prelude, um, if you will, to Bach's well-tempered clavier. But in this case, um, it's pure counterpoint, and it really doesn't matter left-hand or right-hand. It's one melody. And it might start in the right-hand, and then it's fall in the left-hand, and the right-hand and left-hand are kind of equal partners, or even, even thought of as one, uh, because they're not playing... Together they're playing the same thing and chasing one another. Um, it's kind of an interesting texture. It's the first boré. And as I mentioned earlier, um, when composers such as Bach would write two dances, the, the first and the second, they sometimes would change modality. And so here we're in A major. And for me, um, the, the big contrast Bach is going to change the key for us and give us kind of a uh, just a cool piece of music the second boré from the first English suite again, Murray Paria here by what Bach is doing. Um, And this is my my sense through this, is that he's doing a left-hand, right-hand type of uh, uh, the dynamics between those two hands. So, as I mentioned, equal players in the first Boré, but the second one, the right hand, seems to take off. Gets the kind of cool... Uh, almost devious sounding melody. Maybe that means my modern interpretation of that. Um, But it's really cool music. And the left hand just gets this kind of meandering, kind of letting you know, I'm here, I'm here. And then the left hand gets that same melody. But does the right hand just kind of meander about? No, the right hand gets an interesting counter melody on top of that. Um, And then it goes back, new theme, Uh, Right hand takes over, left hand gets a little bit of it, but then the right hand, again, um, isn't delegated to the shadows. So some interesting counterpoint uh, Bach is playing with here. And the fact of the matter is, for me, that uh, he seems to be exploring the role of the two hands and maybe demonstrating for us that the left hand actually has uh, it's its its own persona that we should be paying attention to. Um, the jig is a little tamer, perhaps, um, in flavor, but it is the final movement of the first suite, um, and gives us kind of an interesting, um, I think, first statement in terms of a set of sweets. Uh, for me, in general, the English sweets are a little more interesting as a collection than his French Suites, which would be uh, uh, maybe the next collection to think of leading up to his Opus 1, the Six Partitas. Um, The English Suites, again, I I said that there wasn't anything much English about them. There's a couple theories about why they're called the English Suites. Uh, Perhaps there was an English patron that had requested them to be written. Um, But as I've mentioned there are a sequence of dances they are very much patterned after a French uh, keyboard suite and of course he's using the French dances and the French spellings of those dances and seems to be um, adding a little bit of his own uniqueness in that he's showing us his ability as a master of counterpoint and what he can do with that between two hands probably more so uh, than the French composers would have explored. The English suites for me, again, are kind of interesting in that there are some standout movements that are kind of like diamonds in the rough. Um, and for me, the one that really sticks out in this uh, first suite is the, is the pair of berets. So I hope you enjoyed that. hope you enjoyed the performance uh, on Modern Piano. Hope you appreciated hearing some of the differences when we change the instrument and maybe change the mindset of of how we perform these works. Uh, if you're not familiar with Bach's English Suites and his French Suites, definitely uh, they're probably slightly less well known than the six Partitas, but they are again each sets of six suites, uh, modeled in the French style, and that, folks, is the eleventh. Uh, excuse me, 12th episode of BachCast My name is John Hendren And you can find out more about Baroque music And even a little bit of classical and jazz By visiting Bieberfan, that's B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org My website where you're going to find this podcast Along with some other things of interest To the uh, fan or connoisseur of Baroque music